um, pumping weights and different things. And uh, I found in this app, I found an app on here which is to do with your health. It's a little heart. Anyway, when I went into it, it keeps a record of how many steps you do in a day. And it's got this little thing called walking asymmetry in it. And I didn't have a clue what walking asymmetry was, you know, what, what is that? And so I tapped into it and there's a little um, description of what it is. It says this, in a healthy walking pattern, the timing of the steps you take with each foot is very similar. Walking asymmetry is the percentage of time your steps with one foot are faster or slower than the other foot. This means the lower the percentage of asymmetry, the healthier your walking pattern. Uneven walking patterns such as limping can be a sign of disease, injury or other health issues. An even or symmetrical walk is often an important physical therapy goal when recovering from injury. I want to talk to us this morning basically about walking, walking with Jesus. And I want to ask you a question right at the outset. How's your walking asymmetry doing with Jesus? If you had a percentage, so if you're at zero percent, that means you're, you're walking in total balance, all right? The higher the percentage gets, the more out of kilt you are. And when we start life as children, you know what happens? We don't have a brilliant necessarily walking asymmetry because you know that a baby becomes a toddler and on the route it's falling over all the time and you're picking it up and you're holding the baby out there and you're letting go of the hands and saying come to me and falls down and you pick them up and so on. So that walking asymmetry isn't great but over time they grow into toddlers, they walk very, start to walk much much better, still loads of accidents on the way. Um, into teenage years, there's still the odd accident, but the reality is walking gets better again. But the further along in life you get, and you start to push the boundaries of age, what happens is there's a danger that your walking asymmetry will go out again and it will begin to decline. And you get to someone like my mother's age, and my mother, bless her heart, has had numerous falls at home in the shower twice, you know, in the front room, in the bedroom, she's fallen all over because her walking asymmetry is gone, really. And she spends most of the day in a chair or being transported between different places in the house in a wheelchair. How's your walk with God? How's your walk with Jesus? In Andrew Ollerton's book entitled Romans a letter that makes sense of life, he puts this quote at the beginning of the preface. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out of your door. You step onto the road and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. That comes from J.R. Tolkien's book, The Fellowship of the Ring. How is your walk with God? How close to him are you? How balanced with him are you? Over the last couple of weeks when I was speaking from Daniel, I was saying how things have shifted and changed and how they continue 
almost, it appears sometimes daily that things shift and change in life. Things that, words that you were once able to use, you're no longer able to use, and so on. And so we live in a, in a, in a world which has got a shifting ground. And it's really important that our walking symmetry or asymmetry is balanced and there. And so I want to read from uh, Romans chapter 1 this morning and then just share with you some things out of that and uh, we'll see where we go. So Romans 1, 1. I'm reading through to verse 16. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul is one of the most central and influential characters in the story of the early church. The reality is some people love him, some people hate him, but the one thing I can be sure of is you can't ignore him if you read the New Testament, because you're going to come across something he's written. And I'm pretty sure that as you read it, it will either do one of two things to you. It will either jar you in a, in a what I think is a positive way. You might not feel it's positive, but it's good to be challenged about the things that we think. 
or you will totally see what he is getting at. He wrote 13 out of the 29 books of the New Testament. Prior to Paul's dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, where he had this amazing encounter with Jesus and ended up being led blind into Damascus and then having a call placed on his life to go and preach to the Gentiles. He was somewhat different to the man that he became. He says of himself in Philippians 3, now he's actually talking at the time to the Philippian church and he is, he, he is addressing them, but he alludes to himself and why he has more confidence and he can take more confidence if he has to rely on, him, on himself. And it gives you an insight into the man. It says this, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It always amazes me that Paul is never afraid to let you know on what he based his previous security and experience with God. It was himself. It was totally and entirely himself. But later in the same passage, he moves on from that verse 6 and into verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so here is a guy who's persecuting the church, has all this confidence in himself. He comes along, he has an encounter with God and following that encounter comes to a place where his self-confidence, he knew what he believed, he knew what he thought was right, he was confident entirely in himself but here he changes his course. That encounter changed his course. I count as loss for the sake of Christ everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and then he goes on for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and by any means possible that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. This man who stood at the stoning of Stephen recorded for us in the scriptures, in the book of Acts, this man who went from there having been very happy at what he saw happened. And it says in Acts 9.1 that he basically went out to persecute and to arrest all those who belonged to the way. 
People who said that they were following Jesus. And he's come to a place where he is now considering everything that he once held dear rubbish. Because he's found something of worth. And so when we read Paul in any of his books, we have to remember... We have to remember that this guy has had an almighty encounter with the living God. And it has turned him upside down and inside out. And here he is, wanting, wanting to do something different. And in that passage, that bit of Romans 1 that we, we led, read together... He, he comes to that place where he makes an open declaration for I am not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, I don't care what everybody else is saying. I don't care what everybody else wants to believe. I am not ashamed of the gospel. He goes on at times in Corinthians, he says things like, he says, um, you know, to those who, there, there are those who think the gospel basically is foolish. And when I came to you, I didn't come with um, wise and persuasive words. I came in basically in weakness. And I know that to some, the gospel sounds ludicrous. But to those who are being saved, it is the message of life. It is the message of life. He was not ashamed to the point he went on. And despite all his training, because his training was extensive with the person that he trained with as a Pharisee, he said, I chose when I came among you to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Which seemed ludicrous to everybody else who was outside of God. But he recognized that there was something there. So who was this man, Paul? That verse at the beginning gives us a bit of an insight into him. He's a servant. He sees himself as a servant. He sees himself called. He sees himself set apart for the gospel. But who was Paul behind all that? Well, he was an example of a righteous Jew and a Pharisee like his father. If you read Acts 23, 6, you'll find that out. He was educated in the law, but not just by anybody, but by a guy called Gamaliel. Acts 22.3, go and read it there. He was educated by him. In Dr. Luke's account in his letter to the Acts of the Apostles, we find in chapter 5 that Gamaliel was the one who stood on behalf of the uh, apostles, not because he was necessarily saying he agreed with the message, but he recognized very quickly that if they made martyrs of those men, if they arrested them and killed them, then it would get out of hand. And so he persuaded the Sanhedrin basically just to leave them alone. Paul, or Saul as he was then, could well have been at that meeting. Watching the guy who was teaching him how to be a Pharisee. Watching him talk to the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel was held in honour by all the people. Chapter 5 verse 34. 
And so Paul comes with an educated heritage into this. He kept the law. He said he was blameless in keeping the law. Paul, however, was also a Roman citizen. Very unusual that he would be a Jew, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and yet at the same time carry Roman citizenship. In Acts 22, 25 to 29, we find in those few verses that he came from Tarsus, a prosperous city in the province of Cilicia. And this status gave him special privileges. We see that again in the Acts when he is arrested and they take him out to beat him and he asks the, 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 the guard a question about, is it right that you beat a Roman citizen without first hearing his case? And the result of that was a little bit of a mayhem took place. They had to sort things out. So he was this mixture of a strict Jewish upbringing plus he was a Roman citizen. I read somewhere that it is thought that as many as 30% of those living in Rome at this time were owned by wealthy masters. One third of Rome were slaves servants, whichever one you want to use. And they were there and they were used within households to do the daily bidding of their master. They were traded between them. They were often beaten for very small things just to keep them in order and to make them passive so that they would do exactly what they were told. For the person in slavery or in servanthood, whichever again you want to, the word is used, uh, servant and um, slave is, is used. It's exactly the same Greek word that is used. Um, their goal was not to stay as a slave or a servant. It was to gain their freedom. That's what their goal in life was either to serve their master so well that he gave them papers of freedom or to gain their freedom however it came. And yet here Paul opens his letter to the Romans referring to himself basically, yes, the thing says servant, but he might as well have said slave. Doulos is the word that is used. It's really strange when he is going to come and he is going to share the gospel with a Roman audience that he opens with that phrase for me. That is really strange. Because for any of those who are in the position of being a master, that ought to probably wouldn't be the words you would necessarily choose. Because it would put someone off. What do you mean you're a, a servant, a slave? We we, we don't do that. But Paul does that, describes himself in that manner. Wherever Paul refers to himself in relation to God, it is always in a subordinate role. Always. Always in a subordinate role. In Corinthians, he's challenging sexual immorality and he says these words, but he 
who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality, everyone, every other sin is a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And it's this phrase, you are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Responding to Jesus will require from us that our status changes, and we need to understand that. When we decide to follow Jesus, when we respond to the gospel message that Paul, we will unpack maybe in the weeks ahead, but when we respond to the gospel message, we are no longer in control of our own life. We are saying, I am going to bow my knee, I am going to surrender. We talk about kingship, but at best we become a servant and a slave of the master whom we follow. We come into a position where he is the one who says, this is what you need to do. And we adopt the subordinate position of saying, I will do it. In the world in which we live, we have turned in Christianity this idea now that we have a negotiating opportunity with God. And what we want to do all the time is we want to negotiate the bits in Scripture that we don't, don't sit comfortably with us or anything like that. And therefore, it is problematic for us. We actually like Jesus, we like the message of Jesus, but we don't like this bit about what he teaches or what he preaches. And therefore, I got a problem with him. And I can't say that I have never been without problems with, with God and Jesus about the things that he has taught when I have not wanted to be surrendered and submitted. And that is something that reveals the heart within us. I don't believe in blind obedience. I've remonstrated at times with God about the why, why, why. Why this? Why are you requiring this? But ultimately, we have to bow our knee to him. In the Old Testament, in Exodus, there's a picture of a slave that is given freedom because, you see, one of the arguments is, if the gospel is so good and it's all about freedom, why am I not free then to live how I want to live? Because freedom and what you're saying about bowing the knee and becoming a servant and a slave to Christ does not seem to exist together. And yet in the Old Testament, there's this picture in Exodus, in chapter 21, 5 and 6, it says, But if a servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. You see, God offers freedom 
we offer ourselves in response to that freedom. And we offer ourselves that we would become a servant for life to serve him and his way. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Why would I be prepared to make myself a lifetime slave or servant of Jesus? Because the immense love he showed us and that we celebrated in communion this morning. It's immense. He's called to be an apostle. What's the time, somebody? Because I haven't got a watch. Somebody tell me. Oh, there. 20 to 12. All right. Um. He's called to be an apostle. The call to us as people is always an invitation. The word call means invitation. It's not demand, it's an invitation. Jesus invited the disciples to, before they were disciples as fishermen to follow him. They had to choose to leave their nets and follow him. There is an invitation. God constantly gives us an invitation to surrender to him. Gives us an invitation to follow him gives us an invitation to submit to him. It is our choice whether we do or we don't do that. So Paul states he was called or invited to be an apostle. And linked with that opening statement about being a servant, he is basically saying, God has invited me. I have been called to be a servant. That is what I have been called. I've got a specific task within that. I am a servant of the gospel, the gospel of God. I am a servant of, but he is being called. He uses the word apostle, which means messenger, herald, someone who would de- makes declaration about the, 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 the immense beauty of what it is the gospel is about. And you see that when I read earlier from that passage in Philippians, I consider all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus was the prize. Jesus was the goal. And he is being called heavenward and he is pursuing his goal. There is no fear when we are surrendering. When we walk according to the Spirit, it says this, there is no law. There is no judgment for us when we walk according to the Spirit. But when we walk according to the flesh, we bring ourselves under the, the, the punishment of the law. It appears to me that what Paul is saying there is, if I walk and follow the things of the Spirit, then I don't have to be worried. If I slip and follow the things of the flesh, then I need to become aware and in 1 John 1, 9, it says that he is faithful. If we ask him to forgive us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness, he is faithful and just and will do that. So he's called to be an apostle, a slave, a servant, an apostle. 
someone who is a herald. The idea of the herald is that, you know, when they used to fight battles, they'd send somebody back to the city when they'd won a war or a battle and they would run into the city and declare a bit like, oh yay, oh yay, you know. And they would make declaration of the victory that had just taken place. So he is invited into purpose. His purpose was to carry the message to the Gentiles. He is called into purpose. You have been called into purpose. Being called into purpose, I think, is an amazing thing. It's not just you're anybody, you're just one of a number, but you've been called. You've been invited. You are meant to have purpose in God's kingdom. So for me, for example, I think I was saved just about two years, just under two years probably, when I felt God call me. Did he call me to Bible college? No, actually he didn't. That wasn't what he called me to. Did he call me to be an Elam minister? No, he didn't. He called me to preach. That's what he called me to do, to preach. I exercised that through Elim, and I'm happy to do so. I've been in Elim the majority of my life, so I'm happy to do that. It's not about that, but he called me to preach. That is my calling in God. I can do other things, but it's only when I preach that I feel alive. Whether you do or not is another matter, but I feel alive. Why? Because that was the thing that God placed on me. So I can do administrative tasks, but I hate them. I do, honestly, I hate administration. But there is a gift in the scripture of administration. You know, I could do without doing lots of different things, but there are gifts in the scripture that are given which make up my lack. And I've got loads of lack, you know. But the reality is it makes up my lack. And so together we become a body that should operate well and balanced. Lastly, set apart for the gospel. The first thing that that word set apart for me says to me is this. We have been chosen If you go away with no other thought from what I share this morning, I want you to go away with this one thought at least. You are chosen. You're not a mistake. You haven't just fallen into some religious thing. If that's what you think, then you're missing something. You have been chosen. In Galatians, it says this. In Galatians 1 For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father." Listen to this bit. But when he who had set me apart 
before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone and so on. But when he who had set me apart before I was born in order uh, and who called me by his grace, you have always been in God's eye, always, from the day you were conceived, in fact probably before, but from the day you were conceived you have always been in God's eye, always. He has always seen you Not as a number, but he knows you. He knew your name before you were named. He knew how you were knit together in your mother's womb. He knows you intricately inside out. And that has never stopped. Never stopped. You might have struggles. You might... Be in a place right now where you're raging doubt. You've got, you know, sickness that you're dealing with. You've got emotional trauma you're dealing with. You've got financial issues. Everything around you, what you thought was going to happen, seems to have just frittered and run through your hands like trying to hold sand. But I want to tell you, and I do, if you go away with nothing else, he knew before it happened. He knew. And therefore he is able. He has walked with you and me through every step of our lives. Even the bits where we wander off and do our own thing. He has been with us. He has walked. He has watched us. He has been patient with us. He loves us. He loves us. And so if you go away with nothing else from today... I want you to go away with that one thought. Go away with it. Meditate on that. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident. The things that have gone wrong are not a punishment. They are part of the It sounds really twee, this, but the tapestry of life. But God knows you. And he didn't just call you, he called you by name. He loves you. God loves you. And that is the beauty of the gospel that we have to share with people. God knows everyone. It's our decision whether we respond and follow. It's our decision whether we will Walk in the things that God has asked us to walk in. It is our decision to surrender and bow our knee to him and choose to surrender to what he asks, demands and says. It's our choice. I hope that this day you will make that choice. Let's just pray. Father, I just want to ask that today
Lord, you will help each one of us, Lord, as we try and walk with you. As daft as the illustration is about walking a symmetry, Lord, I pray that we will walk balanced alongside of you, not ahead of you, not lagging behind, but alongside of you. That, Lord, we will let you lead us. We will open our ears to hear your call to us. That, Lord, we will find in your love, your perfect love, which casts out all fear, that we will be willing to bow our knee and surrender to you and be obedient to you. Even the bits that we struggle with. And so, Father... I just ask, Lord, let us go away this week. Let that idea of being chosen, being known by name, let that rest heavily in our lives. Let us come through, Lord, for some that might cause a moment of emotion, of pain, because it's almost too hard to believe. And yet, Lord, bring us through to a place of rejoicing. Because once again, we put our full faith and trust in you for our lives. Help us, Lord, where we have wandered off, where the walk in a symmetry is climbing steep or just a little. Help us bring it back to zero so that we walk balanced with you. I ask that in Jesus' name and that you might receive glory and honor and praise through the lives that we live. Amen.